What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Beware of all these. They are dangerous, not from their knowledge, but from their arrogance, their profanity, their folly. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We're going to listen to a sermon by William Bacon Stevens. It was preached in the year 1856. Troy, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, although the way you said Bacon, I've never noticed that his middle name was Bacon that way. It's the first thing I noticed. Other than that. Yeah, it's the first (laughs) thing I noticed and I can't unsee it. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm doing pretty good. It's been a very long week. I've had several speaking engagements, and I'll be honest, this is top-tier level busyness, but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and so I am just ready to finish up and get to the other side. What about you, Joel? How are things going for you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, my allergies are are doing something fierce with me, so I'm. you, you, you wake up every morning with just a... a congestion blockade that doesn't ever really seem to ever fully go away like it mostly goes away but it's just there all day it's uh it's the worst i need to do something about it although i don't know what but so if i sound a little funny it's because i'm gonna blame it on allergies it's probably just me but i'm I'm blaming it on allergies and i think you sound manlier today joel i wouldn't i wouldn't take it the wrong way no that that part's me that's not allergies all right Let's jump in. By the way, we have some really nice positive responses here. thought I'd read a couple of them for everybody. The first one was on our recent Spotify uh, Darby episode. <clears throat> someone, uh, well, not someone, Cooper T said, I like your show. I think I'll teach my kids church history. It's proof Roman Catholicism isn't the only institution after the book of Acts. The gates of hell have never overcome the church. Thank you for that, Cooper T. And on YouTube, I, I'm really excited about this person who said, Man, these stories and these broadcasts should be put in a book. Serious. This is amazing stuff. And this was by the commenter whose name is Jonathan Edwards. 
is it the real Jonathan Edwards? I like to think it might be. And we appreciate <laughs> that he he's such a big fan of our show. We've had him on the show a few times. So, you know, hey, pretty cool. We also want to shout out Whitney C. and Stephen D. for joining us on the Patreon Club. Again, huge help for that. Uh, it is with your help that we're able to make this show. And it means a lot that people think so much of us that they're willing to throw a few bucks behind it each month. It, uh, it, it helps us tremendously. Today we're talking about William Bacon Stevens. Isn't that right, Troy? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, he is probably not a name that you've ever heard before. I had never heard about William Bacon Stevens. I did as much research as an, on the gentleman as, as one can really come up with. And there's not a ton of information out there. There's a little bit of scantily, scantily, <laughs> a little bit of a short record on Mr. Stevens here. The reason I picked him, though, is because this speech he made is so good. I think that this it will not surprise me if this speech by William Stevens here, who doesn't go down in history for really anything else to be famous about, I think it would not surprise me if this was people was in people's top five list for sure. It's a the the location he gave it is fantastic, and uh, the speech itself is top notch. High praise, high praise coming from Troy over here. I wrote, I wonder, like what? I mean, so he preached this 1956. He was born in or sorry, 1856. 1856. 1856. He was born in 1815. Did they call bacon bacon back then? Like. Why would you? That had to have been a name before. Because uh, I've always Bring just wondered in general. Bacon, maybe. Because there's so many different names for pig's meat. You got ham. You got like pork chops. Yeah. You got like people call pigs different things like swine or, you know, like they're ham. They're, there's a lot of meat names before bacon is introduced. I wonder why, why, so in my head, the ba- the name bacon must have existed long before the, you know, the that, meat that's, bacon. That's a good point, because you don't meet a lot of people with the last name beef, or the last name, right. um, you know, chicken, but there's like Sir Francis Bacon, there's here this guy Kevin named bacon. William Bacon Stevens. Yeah, so like bacon must have had some significance before, you know, the name became a meat, because you don't, you don't ever meet like, you know um sir jonathan chicken fingers or something like that it's only maybe, bacon maybe it was like a like a surname for someone that um like a uh uh prepared bacon you know like how they say like you know like smith is the last name because you were a blacksmith or a cobbler yeah. or you know like like it's your profession maybe there was bacon preppers and and that's where they got their name probably probably not though I just Googled it. Usually we do more research on something before this, but apparently it derives from like a German name that came from the word batak. So I'm guessing that's the part of, and also mm. kind of from the name that was also German, bakos, which means back. And like these two proto names meshed with the French name, bakun, which meant back mm. meat. And eventually it just made its way into bacon. What that does not answer, though, is why people had the last name Bacon. So, yeah, I'm going to go with your answer, which probably is that it was like, these are the guys who give you the back meat, Bacon, and that was their their name, like Smith. So there you go. We we didn't mean to answer this question, and we don't normally answer the question of where food names come from. But in case you're wondering, there's Bacon for you. And still I'm left with even more questions somehow, but... Uh, not 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 the type of podcast to answer those. This type of podcast to give you back history on who is Stephen Bacon. It's his middle name too. Back like history, we're probably not really even gonna mention on. his uh, his uh, f- 
full name moving forward. I'll probably just call him Stevens. Stevens was born in Maine in the year 1815. And if you know anything about kind of uh, the northern area of America in this era, it is a huge export of ice. That's its main, like on a global level, it ships out ice all over the world. I, I, I was deep down a rabbit hole one day of, of looking up, trying to figure out how, how they shipped ice back in the day, you know? Cause like, I've always wondered, cause they had ice around in the early 1800s, but they didn't have freezers per se. So how did they get it around? And so I went down a deep rabbit hole and sure enough, yeah, like Maine, they would cut ice out, pack them into boats and ice has this like, I'm an ice expert now, by the way. Um, <laughs> and this is like not only true on boats, but like going back to lots of older civilizations where they would have like ice houses and ice huts that they would make where in the wintertime you could pack ice in and it would last all summer long, literally all throughout the whole year That's and supply a whole village with ice. Um, but you can pack ice on a ship and it'll last like eight or nine months on a journey uh, because it has this like self-insulating property of it to where like the outside will melt a little bit and then like kind of encase the inner ice and keep it cold. I don't know how I'm not, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure how it works, but supposedly you could take an old sailing ship from Maine to like India and still have 80% of the ice on it over the course. And that's wild, like, actually. like over a month journey. I don't know how they did yeah. it, but fascinating i don't know how they did it either i will say i used to live in a place called cold storage lost when we were in kansas city it was right. an old ice house i remember and that. i cannot tell you how many times i would be walking through that place and go how did the ice not melt in the summer so joel thank you for somewhat in a way answering that mm -hmm. question because i had no answer for that yeah yeah uh again i i'm sure there's a a better eyes expert out there that is yelling at his his phone right now because he knows more than, <laughs> than we're alluding we on. But yeah, Maine also the uh, setting of the opening scene of Frozen where they're cutting out the ice blocks. I'm pretty sure that took place in Maine. <laughs> it's the only one of the only things I remember from that movie is they're like, oh no, everything's frozen. But also like we export ice and it seems like a weird thing to be upset about. Anyway, we should get back to this episode. <laughs> Yeah, so this is his industry that he's growing up in, a, a large global exporter of ice in his uh, in his home area there in Maine. Uh, he was educated at Phillips Academy in Massachusetts, uh, which uh, supposedly is a pretty elite school, so I'm told. It still exists today. Uh, at the time, it shared a campus with and a school board with the Andover Theological Seminary. Andover was founded just shortly before this uh, by a Orthodox Calvinist that had left Harvard because Harvard had appointed a president as a Unitarian in 1807. Uh, so only about uh, 20 years or so before uh, Stevens gets there, this goes down. So it's in its infancy and it's trying to be what its founders considered a better Harvard. <laughs> so again, with that, that prestigious uh, association with it. And after his time learning theology there, uh, he'd actually go on to Dartmouth and get his medical degree. So a, a well-rounded individual. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. 
At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There, he went to Georgia and was a doctor for about five years uh, along the way while he was in Georgia. And I mean, imagine the culture shock of living in the Northeast, being an exporter of ice and moving to the middle of swampy, hot Georgia in the 1800s before the air conditioner, before the refrigerator. Uh, Yet somehow he must have fallen in love with Georgia because he then decided to become a Georgia state history official historian which i am like how did you become that as on top of being a doctor yet he was quite you know proficient like one of when i was doing research one of the things that came up was like georgia state history are you looking for the william bacon stevens who wrote so much about this era so he he was a good writer about it however just as he was settling in his making roots he felt a calling on his life to go into ministry he left his doctoral career behind him and instead hopped into uh, the ministry. He served for a very brief stint in uh, the University of Georgia, and while he was there, he was then a philosophy professor. So if you're keeping track, he's been a doctor, a philosophy professor, and a Georgia State historian. However, Philadelphia was in need of a rector, and I don't know how, but they reached out to him and got his name. And even though he had a pretty happy life in Georgia, loved Georgia and Georgia's history, he decided to go back up to the Northeast and went up to Pennsylvania, where he would eventually get his Doctor of Divinity. And he joined the Philosophy Society that the University of Pennsylvania had just two years before he gives this sermon we're about to listen to. What what I found so interesting about this sermon is that it talks a lot about evolution in such in, in an era... I'm going to recontextualize, reformat how I thought about this stuff, because Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, that he wrote that, you know, colloquially, culturally, we think of introducing these concepts of evolution to society, that was published in 1859, whereas this sermon that we're going to listen to was preached in 1856, and it sounds like, you know, you would think a, a, a society that is in the throes with science versus uh, faith, you know, would be in. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting to see that even even before Darwin, you know, was, was kicking doors down and causing all types of uh, upsets, um, that debate between science and evil, or sorry, between science and, and the spiritual realm and faith was still very much alive and very active Obviously, you know, it would be fueled by Charles Darwin in his uh, his book and his ideas. And then obviously, his just his uh, theories and hypothesis, uh, you know, were, were known at that time. But uh, he wasn't the only one. You know, there, there were there were people that were trying to replace a need for God uh, in that sense. 
And Stevens, again, as a medically trained expert, he takes them on head on and he explains, you know, although science can answer a lot, it can't explain a lot about the world and the human body. And he says that belongs truly to God's realm, which I think is an interesting way of saying like there's the, we'll never probably have a definitive answer for some of these things. He's preaching this uh, as a... Uh, what would you, you call those commensurate commensurate speeches, Troy, at a graduation? Yeah, commiseration, right? Where the very the commencement speech. Right, right. So he's talking to a room full of medical graduates uh, and trying to communicate to them that all of their medicine is meant to point them back to God. praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Didn't you clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and muscle? You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. Man, as he is the crowning work of creation, deserves a deeper study than any of the other works of God. The earth, beautiful as it is in form and structure and garnished with all kinds of loveliness, is to endure only for a little while and then be destroyed by fire. The two great lights which rule the day and the night are to shine only for a season. For the time is fixed in the future when the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. The overarching sky, glittering with countless stars, has its appointed period of duration, and then it will be rolled together as a scroll and pass away to give place to that new heaven and new earth which dwells in righteousness. But man outlives the earth and moon and sun and sky, for he only of all created things or beings in the material universe is endowed with immortality. And here is the expressiveness of that remark of Sir Thomas Brown. While I study to find out how I am a little world, a microcosm, I find myself something more than the great world around me. Most strikingly are some of the leading features of the anatomy and physiology of man brought out in these texts. Listen how Job declares that the body is the workmanship of God. In the words, your hands shaped me and made me. He declares what this material body was made of in the words, Remember me that you molded me like clay. He states the leading outlines of anatomy in the words, Did you not clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and muscles? He indicates the great vital law of physiology in the words, You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. He shows the decay and death of this body in the words, Yet... You do destroy me and bring me into dust again. And he teaches the fact that this wonderfully made body is inhabited by a God-created soul when he says, in your providence, you watched over my spirit. Following some of these germs of thought, I propose to show a few of the moral truths taught by anatomy and physiology and their accordance with the word of God. To study man in both 
a normal and also in a diseased state, is the reason for which you have come up through the various schools of medicine. And what makes this city the greatest seat in medical science in the Western Hemisphere? But you have not learned all of man. Just because you could count his bones and muscles and nerves and arteries. Just because you could describe each organ and function. Just because you have mastered the doctrines of pathology and the principles which regulate a man as a living, organized being. There are other aspects, other laws, other influences than those recorded in the books of anatomy and physiology. And to a few of these, I wish to call your attention at this time. Not in depth, but by way of planting in your minds a few seed thoughts, which under the cultivation of meditation and the dew of the Holy Spirit, they bring out perhaps some future fruit. I will give you no scientific discussions and will avoid as far as possible scientific terms, but will seize on certain open and acknowledged facts in man's physical frame and let these speak. The first and most apparent lesson which these sciences teach is that there is a God. The simple proposition which I lay down here is this. Order and adaptation demonstrate intelligence, and the character of the intelligence rises in proportion to the combinations required and in the extent and perfection of the order. On looking at a locomotive engine, you can tell at once that it is a machine exhibiting order in its arrangement of its parts and how the several parts work both amongst themselves and of the whole to the end designed. And you know at once that it is the product of a high intelligence. Suppose I should undertake to prove that this engine was self-built, its several parts being first self-evolved out of certain atoms of wood and iron, by which a law inherent of themselves assumed in process of time without any superintending power the forms of the firebox, the boiler, the steam engine, the cylinder, the driving wheels, and that these various parts came fortuitously together, and, whoa, a steam engine appears. If this, by universal consent, would be deemed absurd, then is it any less absurd to suppose that the human body was self-built, considering it is only the highest development possible of molecular beings? If I should undertake to prove that a telegraphic battery was self-evolved out of a bar of iron, a coil of wire, a few cups of acid, which cups, wire, and magnet not only came together by chance, but were themselves self-produced, you would denounce me for a fool. Yet the spinal cord, with its membranous wrappings and its 31 pairs of branching nerves, is an instrument of motory and sensorial power far beyond the magnet. The great nerve centers, with their wonderful ganglionic mechanism, are exponentially further ahead of the most powerful battery. The continuous lines of nerves, which spread like a network over the whole body by their structure, their conductibility, their retention of impressions, and their peculiar registering power, are almost infinitely superior to the wires which stretch along the highways of the land and whisper their electric words from a hundred telegraphic centers. In order to give the crudest outlines of the evidences of order and adaptation found in the human body, we must first sum up all its organs, then add the many functions of these organs, then the vast number of adjustments needed for the action of over 600 muscles and over 200 bones, which alone have been estimated to furnish over 100,000 instances of design. To these must be added the infinite mechanical, chemical, and fundamental forces required for the most common operations of life. And to these, 
as numberless as they appear, must be added the various external conditions to which this body must be adapted in the ever-varying stages of life, from infancy to age, in all varieties of climate, soil, productions, employment, governments, diseases, and social conditions. And when multiplying these into each other, you have reached a number inconceivable to the human mind. You must also deal with the proofs of design, furnished by the operations of conscience, the action of the will, the existence of an intellect, and the possession of a soul, each manifesting itself in endless variety through the body, to which each is perfectly adjusted. And what is the most rational conclusion? That such a being, so framed, so endowed, came into existence by chance? Or that it is the work of a long-ascending series of developments ranging upward in natural order and sequence from the lowest form of animal life emerging from the sea, so that, as Dr. Orkin says, man has not been created but developed? Or that other conclusion, that such a being could only be fashioned by a divine architect, could only be given life by a divine spirit, could be preserved only by a divine protector, could be governed only by a divine lawgiver, and could be designed only to illustrate the divine glory. One of the most eminent of England's living scholars, Dr. Werewell, has truly said, there is one idea which the researches of the physiologist and the anatomist so constantly force upon him that he cannot help assuming it as one of the guides of his knowledge. I mean the idea of a purpose, or as it is called in Aristotelian phrase, the final cause in the arrangement of the physical frame. This conviction prevails so steadily among anatomists that even when the use of any part is altogether unknown, it is still taken for granted that it has some use. The development of this conviction, of a purpose in the parts of a body, of a function to which each portion of the organization is subservient, contribute greatly to the progress of physiology. The truth of these remarks is beautifully illustrated in the discovery of the circulation of the blood. I remember, says the Honorable Robert Boyle, that when I asked our famous Harvey a little while before he died what were the things which induced him to think of a circulation of the blood, he answered me that when he took notice of the valves in the veins of so many parts of the body were so placed that they gave free passage to the blood towards the heart, but opposed the passage of the returning blood to go back that way, he was forced to think that so provident a cause as nature had not placed so many valves without a design to it and no design seem more probable than that the blood is sent by the veins to the limbs and that it should then be sent through the arteries and returned through the veins whose valves did not oppose its course that other way. The argument for the being of a god from the laws of order and adaptation found in the body of man is one of the most beautiful, powerful, all-pervading, and convincing which can be furnished by any organism. No wonder that Hippocrates, the father of medicine, was converted from atheism by studying the exquisite formation of the human skeleton. Or that Galen said when he described the anatomy of man, he was actually composing a hymn to the creator. For no one can study this masterpiece of God's earthly work without being forced to say with the text, your hands shaped me and made me. Remember that you molded me like clay. Didn't you clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and muscles? 
Or with the psalmist, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Great and marvelous are your works, and my soul knows well. The second great truth taught by anatomy and physiology is that man is a fallen being. We cannot suppose for a moment that God made man imperfect, for this would imply that either God had not the wisdom or the power or the goodness to make him perfect. That there was no lack of wisdom to devise a perfect being is evident from the fact that every other work of God displays infinite wisdom. That there was no lack of power to make man perfect is proved from the perfection which attaches to every other work of his hand. That there was no lack of goodness is seen by the innumerable provisions of mercy and kindness which mark all the dealings of God with his living creation. God, therefore, made man perfect when he made him in his own image. But we do not see man now wearing that perfect image. It is defaced, soiled, broken. We see man only as an imperfect being. Sickness preys upon him. Accidents assail him. Infirmities possess him. What are all of your books of pathology and what of the institutes of medicine but the scientific record of the fact that man is organically, functionally, and psychologically a fallen being? There is no sickness in heaven. There was no sickness in Eden. There will be none in the world of glory. Sickness, as far as we know it, is confined to this world. And the solemn truth which it forever utters is, man is a fallen being. There is not an organ of the body which may not become the seed of disease. There is not a function which may not become broken. This was not man's original state. Where does the change come from? Physiology says that there is a change, but cannot tell its originating cause. Anatomy attests to the change as fact, but its lips are silent as to its origin. Pathology, in its every page, confirms the truth, but cannot speak up to assign its cause. It is not even expected that they, they will state the cause of this fall. It is not in their expertise. They deal with facts. They are not expected to go within the secrets of the Most High God. We ask that they don't. All that we require of them is that they attest to the fact that man is not a perfect being. We call them to the witness stand merely to testify on this one point. And having delivered their opinion on this subject, we will seek elsewhere for the cause. There is one interesting fact, however, which is quite important to be noticed here. Physiologists and pathologists are urgent in telling you that all disease is the result of some departure or breaking of the physical laws of our being. I would humbly lift the statement out of this physical element and place it on what I conceive to be its true position and say, all diseased conditions are the result of the violations of the moral laws of our being. And I would base my assertion by the facts, open and notorious, that there is scarcely a disease or accident that can happen to man that may not, directly or indirectly, be traced to the breaking of God's law either in its requirement of love for him or love to man. There is scarcely a disease or accident which may not be said to result from either human passions, human ignorance, or human infirmities. And each of these is the sequence of moral disobedience. For if we love God supremely, there would be no uncurbed passions hurrying us into the passionate causes of sickness. If we seek God's guidance, 
There would be no ignorance leading us blindfolded into disease. And if we had perfect obedience to God and perfect love for our fellow man, we would have no infirmities of the flesh or of the spirit. Not only do we find a perfect coincidence between the universal reign of sin and the universal prevalence of disease, but the Bible abounds with instances showing that God most frequently punished moral evils by physical disease. That sickness was a recognized and appointed agent of God in which he visited his displeasure upon men, communities, and nations. When God delivered his ordinances to the children of Israel, he accompanied it with the threat. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. So, when the Levitical laws were recapitulated in the book of Deuteronomy, we observe that God linked disobedience of them with grievous diseases. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors, scurvy, and the itch from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will strike you with madness, blindness, and panic, summing up the statement with the words, also every sickness and every plague. When Miriam spoke against Moses, she was struck with leprosy, white as snow. When Gehazi lied to Naaman, the prophet declared that the leprosy of Naaman should cleave to Gehazi and his house forever. When Uzziah, king of Judah, intrud when Uzziah, king of Judah, intruded himself into the temple to burn incense, the bright spot of the leper immediately appeared upon his forehead, and the priests thrust him out of the house of the Lord. The sin of King Jeroboam was visited with paralysis of the arm of King Asa with elephantiasis, of King Jehoram with incurable gastric disease, of Elimus with blindness, of King Herod with loathsome sickness, for he was eaten up by worms and died. Because, so said the sacred writer, he did not give God the glory. So, God himself establishes a relationship between sin and disease, which can demonstrate that man is a fallen being that but for sin, there would be no disease, so that the existence of disease is everywhere present proof of the existence of human depravity. A third religious truth taught by anatomy and physiology is that there are in the human system the seeds of death, which death was brought about into the world by sin. A distinguished American physiologist Draper declares that the whole science of physiology is a commentary on the truth that the condition of life is death. Paradoxical as this assertion of the learned professor may seem, it is fully sustained by the facts of physiology. For it is a law of physiology that the amount of fundamental action which can be performed by each living cell has a definite limit. And when that certain point has been reached, the destruction of the activity of the cell follows. Here, there is a steady wasting away of all of the parts of the physical mechanism. There is no part of the human system exempt from this law of disintegration and repair. But the power to repair the constant wastage from so many disintegrating cells gradually fails, and then the waste increases beyond repair and the body dies. What a striking 
and I might almost say scientific comment, is this law of physiology on the original curse pronounced on man in Eden. In appointing the tree of knowledge of good and evil to be the test of Adam's obedience, God said, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Or as the Hebrew literally reads, dying, you will die. Death did not come upon Adam on the literal day on which he ate the forbidden fruit. It was the opposite, for he lived many hundreds of years afterward. But on the day of disobedience, that day of man's ruin and man's curse, he became mortal. There was made by the same power which originally created him out of the dust a change in his physical system and from which he was ever going to have a dying life. For it began a process of constant death that was always going to be on the inside of his body, decline and death being stamped upon each and every tissue, on every cell, every fiber, and every membrane. It has been powerfully spoken of by one of your own most accomplished professors, a Mr. F. Gurney Smith, that every movement of a muscle, every exercise of the brain, whether in thought or will, in a word, every action that we perform causes the death of some of the cells of the organ that performs it, so that, in truth, we die daily in order that we may live. And even though this degenerating process is met and recouped by the regenerative process of the core power, yet, like a life clock whose weights are hung to run for an appointed time, this regenerative power has its limit, and eventual death is but the sequence of long-continued molecular death. And so the curse, dying you will die, had then, has now, and as long as sin reigns in the world, will have its full and physiological verification. So it is that man ever bears about him the seeds of death. Every cell in the human body, though seen only through the eye of the microscope, is a seed of death. And here, all the tissues and organs of the body made up of these countless cells are but so many aggregates of death seed, ripening with greater or less rapidity for the harvest of death and the reward of the grave. But where does this death come from? Here, Physical science is silent, and we must go to scriptural revelation for the answer. By one man, says Paul, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men because all have sinned. Death, then, wherever we meet it, is the result of sin, and its tomb-like voice ever repeats, man has sinned. Every funeral knell tolls the word sin. Every stroke of the hammer that drives a nail into the coffin, sharp. Every stroke of the hammer that drives a nail into the coffin strikes the sharp, quick word sin. Every passing hearse rattles the word sin. Every stroke of the chisel upon the gravestone clicks the word sin. Every burial service speaks of sin. Sin is the one startling monosyllable which rings all day long and all night long like the cricket song from inside every graveyard. Sin is the one syllable which the great sea ever moans out from its cemetery under the depths. Sin is the one fearful cry which dwells on the bloodless lips of the plague. Sin is the one appalling shriek which rings louder than the cannons roar on the field of blood. There is not a day, an hour, a minute, a second of time 
when death, as he hurls his dart into some victim's heart, does not shout the word, which tells the whole story of himself and his deeds, and that one word is sin. A fourth truth taught by the anatomy and physiology of the body is that man is a being framed under laws. These sciences show that there is no portion of the body which is not covered by a mechanical, chemical, or fundamental law. It reaches downwards to the core of man's fetal existence and manifests itself in the beautiful and all-pervading law of cell growth. And it stretches upward through all the convolutions of the brain as it fills the dome of thought and becomes the dwelling place of the God-breathed soul. If this weren't true, man would be a chaos which science could never reduce to order, and the medical art would be mere guesswork, like shooting a bow at night and hoping it hits a target. Even the diseases which assail us are regulated by rules, and just when these laws are discovered does the science of pathology approach perfection. And when these rules are understood and put into the hands of the doctor, it becomes the invaluable data by which he can apply his medicines and determine results. Man is so entirely under these physiological laws that many of them operate upon him without his awareness and entirely outside his own will. Sir Charles Bell truly says that if the fundamental actions of a man's frame were directed by his will, they are necessarily so minute and complicated that they would immediately fall into confusion. Man cannot draw a breath without the exercise of sensibilities as well-ordered as those are of the eye or ear. The action of his heart and the circulation of his blood and all of the core functions are governed through means and by laws which are not dependent upon his will and to which the powers of his mind are altogether inadequate. For if they had been under the influence of his will, a doubt, a moment's pause of uncertainty of forgetfulness, a forgetfulness of a single action at its appointed time would have terminated his existence. Man, then, in each of his physical aspects, presents himself to us as a being under laws. But the natural and moral constitution and government of this world, as Bishop Butler says, are so connected as to make up together but one scheme, and it is highly probable that the natural is formed and carried on merely in subservience to the spiritual. As the vegetable world is for the animal, our organized bodies are for our minds." What this profound writer, reasoning solely on the analogies of nature, sets out as highly probable, we now know to be a fact. We know that man is a compound being of soul and body, that there is a mutual action and reaction of soul and body, that the laws which govern man's physical nature cannot, by their very nature, hold sway over the soul, that the soul, exempt from physical law, must be amenable to moral law because it is a moral agent. And as soul and body make up one man, and as there cannot be two controlling and self-existent wills operating at the same time on the same being, demanding a divided loyalty, we must infer that there is but one lawgiver. And that lawgiver for man's physical nature is the lawgiver for his spiritual nature. And that this one lawgiver is God. We, therefore, as open to God, as moral and accountable beings as we are to him for our material needs. And what is that moral law under which man is placed? 
not one which man has made for himself, for he can no more make a moral law than he can make a physical one. It must be that the only moral law which has been given by the one lawgiver and summed up in these words of Jesus, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. A law covering not the outward conduct only, but reaching to the thoughts and intents of the heart. A law which is the transcribed will of a holy God. A law which is at once the rule of angels and archangels and the six-winged cherubim around the throne. And a law for man, the creature on the footstool. A law which overarches two worlds in its provisions of love and holiness and binds both in one covenant rainbow of promised bliss. From this law, you cannot free yourself. You may as well attempt to break the links in the law of gravitation as free yourself from the moral law of your creator. By this law, as a free moral being, you must live, and by it you will be judged, and by it be made either happy or miserable forever. And the only way by which you can fulfill this law is not by any personal obedience, but by the substitutionary obedience of one who, though in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant in order that he might stand in our place, bear our curse, obey for us the broken law, and by his own infinite merits and his own precious bloodshedding, obtain a free pardon and perfect righteousness, both of which are made ours by faith in him. And so, Although by ourselves we cannot obey the law, yet we do magnify it and make it honorable through Christ. By ourselves we have no merits. We are accounted as righteous before God through the merits of our divine substitute. By ourselves we could never secure pardon. We are freely pardoned through the precious bloodshedding of our glorious Savior. And so through another's pains another's merits, another's death. We, by faith in him, are put into full possession of all the blessings purchased by his spotless life and his sacrificial death. And those blessings are summed up in the words, eternal life and bliss at God's right hand. Few natural studies are more interesting or give us better insight into some of the attributes of God than the study of medicine. For the physician's part is not to create from himself the healing, but only to aid nature, to prevent foreign interference, to stimulate the delayed processes, to adjust related parts, to supply required material, and then to watch the restorative process until health rewards his work. Now, this whole process, so beautiful, so effective, so infinitely wise and good, is but the physical expression of a high moral law. For by it, God would show to men that there is healing and regeneration for his diseased and fallen soul. That this is so is evident from two remarkable facts. First, that sin is often represented in the Bible under the name of disease. Now, this is not by accident, but by design. When God would give the Israelites some visible picture of the loathsomeness and destructiveness of sin, he selected the disease of leprosy 
the most fearful of all the maladies which afflict our race, and ordained it as the standing type of uncleanness and separation throughout the camp of Israel. When he wants people to picture when he wants people to picture trapped in sin, he uses blindness as an emblem of mental darkness. When he would show indifference to warning, he chooses deafness by which the ear refuses to hear the voice of reason. When he would explain the loss of moral strength, it is by paralysis, unnerving the limb and shriveling the muscle. When he would demonstrate the gradual wasting process of sin, it is by consumption when one's flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. And when God would express total depravity, he does it in these medical words. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed and not bound up and not lotioned with ointment. The other remarkable fact to which I alluded in this connection is this, that Jesus Christ, who came to save the soul, constantly stands before us as the great physician. When Christ came, he came as prophecy said he would, as a healer of disease, so that through his cure of earthly maladies, he might show his higher power to cure the sin-sick soul. It is interesting to note that the diseases which our Lord specifically healed, though he cured all who came to him, yet those which appear most frequently on the pages of Scripture represented the same inner state of man, and that what he did in the body found its true significance only as seen in the light of those deeper diseases of the soul, whose lacks and woes were faintly shadowed out by the pains and sickness of daily life. There are four special classes of disease upon which our Lord used his healing power, namely leprosy, which indicated moral uncleanness, insanity, including the whole lists of demoniacal possessions, which shows the loss of a holy and controlling will, paralysis, which represented moral helplessness, and blindness, which typified spiritual darkness. What man most needed was light from heaven, how could Christ better show himself as the true light of the world than by pouring the light of day into the eyes of the blind? Man needed some aid outside himself to help him in his state of moral impotence. And how better could Christ display himself as the Lord and giver of might than by bidding the withered hand to be whole, the paralyzed to arise, the impotent man to take up his bed and walk, Man needed some guiding moral power to his mind so that it should not be haunted upon by the spirits of evil and be the camping ground for error. What better way to exhibit this power than by dispossessing the demon possessed and causing the once furious and lunatic victims to sit at his feet clothed and in their right mind? Above all, man needed moral cleansing. Pollution, inborn and inbred, reigned inside and man was a walking Lazarus with no soundness in him. And how better could Christ show his power to purge and purify the soul and give it spiritual health than by healing those who were full of leprosy in the startling words, I will be clean. Having then taught us these lessons by his own miraculous works on the bodies of men and made his physical cures the credentials of his power to heal the evils of the soul, he saves his people from their sins. 
that is the one named in heaven, the Prince of Life, because of the healing he bestows, is eternal life. And the results of that cure are the endless joys of that land, the inhabitant of which will never say, I am sick. For in that land there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sighing, for the former things are passed away, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The soul has no natural cures. It is in ruins. It has no more power to repair its losses than a broken statue has to replace its own lost arm. Here we must go outside of ourselves if we would be made whole. We must go to Jesus, the great physician, and use the methods he prescribes, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when renouncing all trust in ourselves and the placebos of a vain philosophy and all the prescriptions of those moral charlatans who promise you salvation on other terms than those laid down in the Bible, you go directly to Christ, not stopping to relieve your blindness a little, to remove your leprosy a little, to heal your palsy a little before you go, but go, just as you are, blind as the beggar, as full of leprosy as Naaman, as helpless as the Bethsaida paralytic, as spiritually beside yourself as the demoniac of Gadara, go, just as you are, having no plea but Christ's merits and your need. And the Savior, who said to the blind, receive your sight, and they saw, who commanded the paralyzed to rise, and he walked, who willed the healing of the leper, and he was clean, who commanded the legion spirits to depart from the demon-possessed one, and he was restored to his right mind, and he will speak the healing word, to you and say, as he said of old son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Among many other interesting truths taught by the anatomy and physiology of man, I can mention one more. And that is that they teach us that man has a soul. In examining the human form, we find that it consists of a number of perfectly distinct organs and systems, each marvelous in itself and each united to the others, and all bound into one body by a nervous system, which found in every part controls every part and makes each do the bidding from the one source, the brain. We also find that it is a physiological law that no organ or function is self-acting. It must be set into action by influences outside of itself. The lungs, perfect in their pneumatic apparatus, cannot act without air. The bones, constructed and arranged on the finest principles of mechanics, cannot act as levers and supports without muscular contraction. The heart, admirable in its hydraulic properties, cannot pulsate without blood. The optic nerve in the eye must first be excited by light, and the ear, with its wonderful acoustic principles, hears only as the delicate organs are stimulated by sound waves. But when we come to the brain, we find no more self-acting power there than in the organs named. Its structure is merely automatic. It requires an agent outside of itself to excite its actions just as much as the lungs air, the eye light, and the ear sound. And now the question arises, what is that agent? We answer boldly, the immortal soul. But where is it from? And what is this soul? Will we say with the most recent and refined form of materialism that the mind is a subtle product evolved out of matter and destined to an endless existence? With Hartley, will we say that the mind is just a vibration of the fibers of the brain, 
Like some of the French philosophers who say that as the stomach secretes bile, so the brain secretes thought. Take any of these or countless other excuses and you involve yourselves in doubt, perplexity, and sorrow. You must explain things that are inexplicable and you must assume premises which are not assumable. You must draw conclusions which are not logical and you must work on hypotheses which are the wildest conjectures of chattering skeptics and commit yourselves to the guidance of men whose first goal is to quench the light of the Bible. And by then, by means of the flickering light of a decomposing philosophy, explore the region of the soul and seek to turn its ethereal powers into atomic particles in ever-changing organisms. Now, each of these truths, anatomy and physiology, will show the shadow of, but the Bible fully unfolds them. Where we need light, it gives light. And where we need certainty, it gives certainty. Where we seek guidance, it takes us by the hand and guides our feet into the paths of peace. The Bible tells us that God made man's body out of the dust, that his hands took pains in his construction, that he clothed him with skin and flesh and framed him with bones and muscle. The Bible tells us that man is a fallen being, that God made man upright, but that they have all gone out of the way, that they have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that man has in him the seeds of death, that he comes up and is cut down like a flower. He flees like a shadow and never continues. That the irreversible decree of God is dust you are and to dust you will return. The Bible tells us that man is a being under moral law. That this is a perfect, holy, just, and good law. And that all men, as the creatures of God, are under the law of God. For he rules among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. That this law is written in the hearts and consciences of men. The Bible tells us that man has a soul breathed into him by the breath of God and endowed with immortality. A soul capable of vast growth, vast comprehension, vast enjoyment, and which will forever dwell in eternal woe or rise to eternal bliss in heaven. The Bible tells us that there is reparation for our disease and sin-prostrated souls, that there is a balm for Gilead and a physician there that Jesus waits to be gracious, that he invites us to receive the healing which he offers, that his cures never fail, that his power never wearies, that his grace is never lacking, and that his language to the sin-sick heart is, Behold, I will bring it health and cure. I will cure them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. So beautifully accord the teachings of the of anatomy and physiology and the truths of God's holy word, it is only lately that these sciences have become contentious. Or really, it is only lately that they have been noticed and interpreted to be against truth. For these utterings are nothing new, but the ears used to ignore such dull sounds. There is yet, however, one point which I wish to carry to your thoughts, but which lies outside the province of physical science. But though not within the purview of anatomy and physiology, they yet point to it. I mean the glorified body, which will someday enrobe the soul in heaven. That the soul will have an embodied existence there. That it will have a personal identity and physical manifestation. The Bible fully declares this. 
What its real nature will be, we do not know. It will not be formed of the component elements of our present bodies, for Paul declares flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It will not be fashioned of materials needing nutrition and repair, for it will hunger no more, nor thirst any more. It will not be subjected to the wearying processes of sickness and sorrow, for it will never suffer pain, nor weep a tear, and sorrow and sighing will forever flee away. It is not a body of dust to again be resolved into dust. For though sown in the grave in corruption, it will be raised in incorruption, and this corruptible will put on incorruption. It is not a natural or earthly body, but a spiritual and celestial body made like Christ's glorified body. The body of his resurrection, the body of his ascension, the body which he even now wears at the right hand of God. But who will describe that body? Who will analyze its elements? Who can tell its functions? Who will reveal its laws of being? Like the disciples on the Mount of Ascension, we can gaze up into heaven looking intently after the ascending body of him who has gone up there. But a cloud receives him out of our sight, and we come down from the mount with strained eyeballs and aching hearts. Yet we know this much, that our bodies will be fashioned like Jesus' glorious body. That though it does not yet appear what we will be, we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That this mortal will put on immortality, and that planted with Jesus in the likeness of his death, we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So, just as the simplest organism of animals points by its structure upward to man, so man's earthly frame points to his heavenly frame, and his heavenly frame to Christ's spiritual body, and we see that all animated things on earth point onward to Christ's glorified humanity as the grand archetype of all that has life. The bodies which you now bear about you must soon die. Your healing arts cannot destroy death. They can only prolong for a little while a dying life. But the soul which inhabits your body will not die. It will return to God who gave it. Would we, however, rise from the grave with a glorified body made like Christ's body? It can only be by having our life hidden with Christ, by having our hearts linked with his by living faith by having our natures renewed by the Holy Spirit, by having our sins washed away in atoning blood, by having our souls arrayed in Christ's spotless righteousness, by having Christ formed within us the hope of glory, and pardoned, repentant, and believing, we rise to the newness of life. And these vile bodies, these bodies of our fall, these bodies of dust and breath will be changed and made like his own glorious body according to the mighty working which he is able to subdue all things to himself. And so we will forever be with the Lord. Young gentlemen, I have thrown out these thoughts and wish them to lie in your minds as seed thoughts, which may perhaps by and by ripen into good fruit. Engrossed as you are in your study of second causes, you are in great danger of forgetting the first great cause that there is no created being on earth who centers in himself so many proofs of divine wisdom, power, goodness, and truth as man does. 
Yet, because you are engaged in searching out physical functions for the purpose of applying them to the lessons of pathology, the directions of therapeutics, and the cures of modern medicine, you are tempted to stop short of the higher teachings of anatomy and physiology, or even rebuke them altogether. Remember the weighty words of Lord Bacon. A little philosophy inclines men's minds to atheism, but depth in philosophy brings minds back to religion. For while the mind of man looks upon second causes scattered, it may sometimes rest in them and go no farther. But when it beholds the chain of them united and linked together, it must then fly back to providence and deity. It was because I felt the full force of this profound remark that I wish to bring before you in connection with your daily studies higher thoughts than you learn in the schools and more sacred teachings than you find in your textbooks. I wished you to feel that when you had studied man as a material being, you had only studied the outside of that structure which God built for the dwelling of the temple of the soul. That you can know men right only as you know his moral relations, as you know his present condition and the scale of being, as you know his future destiny. And that this knowledge, this highest of all sciences, this most needed of all acquirements, can be learned only in the word of God. It is, however, pleasant to know that the more perfect a science becomes, the more it agrees with the Bible. In the youth of every science, there is a period when, like the prodigal in the parable, it leaves the father's house, and it goes into a far country and wastes its substance in skeptical babbling. But before long, it tires of its husks and its exile, and growing wiser and more reflective, it comes back and asks to be received as a hired servant of the God of knowledge. And the God of knowledge, honoring a science which honors him, puts upon it the tokens of a father's love and permits it to minister before him. And though a sour skeptic, like an elder son, will become angry and refuse to go into the house of wisdom, Yet neither the taunts of infidelity nor the scoffs of the profane will hush one note of that song of gladness which religion will yet sing over every returning science as it comes back to its father's house. This, my son, was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. And what a beautiful ministry that will be. When the great sciences of earth come together like the twelve apostles to worship and kneel before him, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For come, they assuredly will. Nothing is more clearly discerned by the observant eye than the fact that every step which science takes in advance is a step towards scriptural revelation. And this must necessarily be this way. For as science is but knowledge, and all human knowledge is confined to God's works, so must a deeper knowledge of God's work must become more accordant with God's words. For they have one author, the God of truth. It is only a shallow science, which babbles because it has become shallow, which talks with a boasting tongue against the Bible. It is only a vain philosophy puffed up with its own windiness, which rails at the religion of Jesus. It is only the would-be wise men, with a smattering of scientific terms upon their lips and real ignorance in their minds, who lift up their taunting voice in the exclamation of a heathen king, Who is the Lord that I should serve him? I know not the Lord, neither will I obey his voice. 
beware of all these. They are dangerous, not from their knowledge, but from their arrogance, their profanity, their folly. For if you once begin the career of the scorner and go on in the way of the skeptic, you put in peril every interest of your mind, body, and soul for time and eternity. Rather, let it be your aim to sit at the feet of Jesus and be taught by him. For as in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, so the student of Christ drinks from no distant and dirty streams, but from the living wellspring and is taught by no false philosophers, but by incarnate truth, and is led into no alienation from God, but brought into living sonship to Jehovah, and is made wise, not in the imperfect science of earth, but in that knowledge which makes us wise for salvation. And when you attain this wisdom, you will then find that the noblest knowledge is to know God. The noblest wisdom is to reveal him. The noblest gift is to love him. The noblest art is to glorify him. And the noblest ambition is to grow up into the divine likeness and receive through the operation of a living faith that sonship by which you become an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ to an incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance in heaven. I really enjoyed so much of the different things he pointed out in the sermon and just how he skillfully used both his knowledge of the Bible and his knowledge of medicine to make his case. I, I can't I, I try to think of like how often we see this happening now. Maybe it's maybe it's common and I just haven't noticed it. But I don't see a lot of people who have experts, like expert knowledge on different areas, getting out there and using that expert knowledge to defend the Bible and defend God's truth. You know, I don't I can't think of too many doctors or too many engineers or too many people who are who are they're good in their field, but they're bringing the Bible fr- to the front of their particular field, their particular interest in getting out there. And I've, I, I feel like William Bacon Stevens here would have been a really powerful person. Now, I actually know it was really powerful because when he gave this speech, they actually invited him back and had him give the exact same speech the next year. They loved it so much. So that's definitely a sign that you're successful when they say, we're going to need to repeat on that when it was that good. I, it makes me, I think it's a good challenge. Where are people doing this today? If you're an expert, maybe you're not in ministry, but I bet you, you have an area where you know this one field or this area pretty well and get out there. I encourage you to be like William Bacon Stevenson, share the gospel with the people around you, get out there and try to, try to use that knowledge you have to further the kingdom of God. you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was preached by Ed Backel. He is a Washington State native. He's taught for 30 plus years in churches in Oregon, Washington, Nebraska. Currently, he's in Warden, Washington and has been serving with Warden Community Church since May of 2010. Pastor Ed has done several sermons for us. If you'd like to go listen to some of his others, uh, Christmas Evans is the one that I'm thinking of right off the top of my head, but he's done many great sermons with us and it's just always a treat when we can have him read one of the sermons for us. Thank you, Pastor Ed, for this one. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to share it. Tell some people about Revive Thoughts. Let them know what we are doing uh, here and tell them about this show. Let them listen to this very encouraging speech uh, by William Bacon Stevens. And yeah, get out there and share it with some friends. Let someone else know what we're doing here. This is Troy and Joel. This is Revive Thoughts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.